Welcome to episode 14 of the TTM Academy podcast. This is Felipe Turan speaking to you from the Center for Resuscitation Science at University of Pennsylvania. Today you are up for a treat. We're just recovering from a busy week wrapping up RES, the Resuscitation Science Symposium 2019, which took place right here in Philadelphia. Congratulations to the organizers who put together what I think was the best resuscitation symposium yet. One of the greatest traditions of the Resuscitation Science Symposium and probably one of the most awaited presentations every year is the year in review, a state-of-the-art lecture given every year by a senior cardiac arrest scientist who is tasked with the challenging mission to choose, curate, and present what he or she believes are the most important and influential cardiac arrest studies published in the past year. For anyone interested in resuscitation research and clinical practice of cardiac arrest, this is the lecture you want to listen to. This year's year in review was presented by Dr. Bob Newmark, who needs no introduction in the field of cardiac arrest research, and he will be joining us with Dr. Cindy Su, a young investigator researcher at University of Michigan, and I will be speaking to the two of them to together review Dr. Newmark's presentation at rest. So because of the length of this conversation and the number of studies that we covered, we are going to be splitting this into two episodes. So doing episode one, we'll be reviewing half of the studies, basically half of his presentation, and we'll continue the conversation in the next episode, in episode 15. So with no further ado, I bring you Dr. Cindy Sue and Dr. Bob Newmore. Enjoy. Why don't we get started? Cindy and Bob, how are you? Doing just fine. Great, thank you. Thank you for joining me. So Cindy Sue is an emergency physician. She received her undergraduate degree from John Hopkins and did an MD and PhD degree both from Boston University. She trained emergency medicine here at Penn, where she was a chief resident. She then went to complete a trauma and surgical critical care at Shock Trauma Center. And she's currently an assistant professor of emergency medicine and surgery at the University of Michigan. She's also a K-12 scholar in emergency critical care research. And she's currently conducting several studies on translational work, evaluating specifically neuroprotective uh, therapies for cardiac arrest survivors. Dr. Robert Newmore is a professor and chair of emergency medicine at University of Michigan Medical School and also a member of the Michigan Center for Integrative Research in Critical Care, the MSERC. He's also a member of the Extracorporeal Life Support, ECLS Research Lab, and he runs the Newmore Research Lab at University of Michigan. Dr. Newmore has been involved in research with cardiac arrest for over 30 years at this point. He's a uh, well-known and renowned scientist in this field. His basic science research has been a focus mostly on mechanisms of neuronal uh, injury after ischemic uh, and traumatic brain injury, as well as therapeutic strategies to improve neurological outcomes, including uh, therapeutic hypothermia the main topic that we discuss in this uh, series. So the very first study by our colleague Bobby Sutton published in Pediatric Critical Care 2019 and is titled Ventilation Rates in Pediatric In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest Survival Outcomes. This was a prospective multi-center observational study. So Cindy, uh, what did they do and why is the study important? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, the importance of this study is actually the first study that specifically looked at the ventilation rate 
of pediatric cardiac arrest. The guidelines actually have recommended that the respiratory rate in children uh, during cardiac arrest to be also 10 in a minute, which is consistent, if you know, with adults. And that, I think, is more of a practical issue to really to make sure that we can standardize the training across the board. So nobody's really looked at really the, the, the outcome or whether or not actually that's a good ventilation rate in children. So what Dr. Sun and colleagues did uh, was that they did a prospective multicenter observational study using the uh, Collaborative Pediatric Critical Care Research Network. And they included uh, children uh, and ended up to be 47 intubated children that were greater than 37 weeks and less than 19 years of age who received at least one minute of CPR and they looked at their ventilation rate and arterial diastolic pressure uh, during uh, the arrest, and their outcome was survival to hospital discharge. So what did they find? So this, I, I thought the results were actually really mind-boggling. So not only did they find that not a single one of these patients received the recommended guideline uh, ventilation rate of 10 a minute, they also found that, in fact, if the, and they defined essentially uh, that the hyperventilation was greater than uh, 30. So if the mean ventilation rate was actually in fact 30 minutes uh, breaths per minute, uh, and uh, that there was actually a better odds ratio for survival with good neurologic outcome of 4.7, if the infants received greater than 30 uh, breaths per minute, and the children of greater than one years of age received 25 beats per minute. Um, so that suggests to me that we really need to rethink what really is the, should be the, recommended uh, ventilation rate for pediatric cardiac arrest patients. Absolutely. So we could say as a conclusion, ventilation rates in pediatric CPR really need to be re-evaluated. Moving on, we want to cover everything we have here is a Two for one, at least two publications out of a, a larger study published by lead author Dr. Pika Jakula in intensive care medicine, and this is the Comacare study. So, Bob, why don't you walk us through what this group did and why is this important? Yeah, so this is this is really an elegant study done by uh, by the group uh, led by Dr. Jakula, and fundamentally, you know, one of the things we deal with in, in post arrest care is how much of the brain injury is caused by the initial cardiac arrest itself, and then how much of the brain injury is due to secondary injury, either secondary ischemia or edema, or, or either you know, injury from hyperoxia that adds on to the primary injury. So there's been a lot of retrospective studies looking at uh, does it matter how much, uh, what your blood pressure is after, in the post-arrest period, what, does it matter what your PO2 is or your PCO2 uh, in terms of causing or preventing secondary brain injury. And, and the retrospective studies have suggested that both hypo, hypoxia and hyperoxia worsen outcome. There's some suggestion that a hyperventilation or a low PaCO2 may decrease brain blood flow and worsen outcome. Uh, and then even blood pressure autoregulation is disrupted and maybe higher blood pressure targets than what we typically target at 65 may be needed. But all of that's been retrospective descriptive data, and this is one of the first studies that have looked at this prospectively by randomizing patients to high or low targets and looking at outcome. So they were looking at arterial CO2, oxygen, and uh, mean arterial pressure targets after cardiac arrest, correct? Correct, yeah. And if you go, uh, and, and, the, and the targets they chose, is one important thing to recognize is that the targets they chose were at the higher low end of normal. So some of the retrospective data looked at some extremes of oxygen and CO2 
but this group chose uh, to look at levels that were sort of at the higher or low end of normal. So they had, uh, this was a coma care network, which is adult ICUs. Uh, so it's a multi-center study and they did this two by three factorial design. Uh, 123 patients were included. They all were only witnessed VFDTs as initial rhythm. So it's really a subset of the total cardiac arrest population. And again, they targeted a specific PaCO2, PaO2, and MAP for the first 36 hours post-arrest. Now, it was only powered for a, a biomarker primary outcome with non-specific enolase, so it wasn't powered to look at uh, uh, survival with neurologic outcome, but they measured that and reported the, uh, the rate of uh, CPC one or two outcomes at six months. Got it. But th their primary outcome was actually neuron-specific enolase at 48 hours, correct? Right. And the, and the challenge with that is that the neuron-specific enolase you're going to measure is going to be a mixture of the neuronal death. Actually, what you're measuring there is the, probably the neuronal death caused by the primary injury of the cardiac arrest uh, because it takes 24 to 48 hours for neuron-specific enolase to peak. So any injury they might have prevented with the 36 hours of post-arrest care might have been hard to detect using that outcome measure because that might have shown up later. And it's a mixture of that primary secondary injury that they're trying to sort out. So they had 123 uh, comatose intubated post-arrest patients with witness uh, BF or VT, uh, pulses VT as initial rhythm. And those were the primary and secondary outcomes we mentioned. And what were the main results of the study? So first of all, the, so the, one of the things we want to always think about is did the study achieve the goal of separation between the two treatments? So uh, if you look at the numbers, the, the goal for PaCO2, the low end was uh, you know, 34 to 35 millimeters of mercury and the high end was 43 to 45 millimeters of mercury. So those are, are you know, about a 10 millimeter mercury difference in CO2, but sort of the high low end of normal. For oxygen, again, the low, the normoxia was 75 to 110 PaO2, and the moderate hyperoxia is 150 to 187. And then the MAP goal was 65 to 75 versus 80 to 100. But um, you know, when you, when you look at the study, the measured differences uh, were statistically significant. So they did get separation in those differences, uh, which is an important parameter. But for example, the MAP averaged uh, a little above 70 in the low normal MAP group and about 85 in the, uh, in the high normal MAP group. So the separation was about 10 millimeters of mercury. So these aren't huge differences in blood pressure and that's something to keep in mind. So yeah, so, so there, they didn't see any difference in their primary outcome of non-specific enolase. Uh, and, and then when they, they did look at survival with uh, you know, good neurologic outcome at six months and there was no uh, statistical differences uh, between the groups in that. So I, I think the, the sort of the take home message is that I think the jury is still out on uh, how best to optimize PaO2, PCO2, and, and MAP post arrest. I think they showed no definitive evidence that their high or versus low target was better, but it was really not powered to measure significant outcome measurements. And I think ultimately the main thing is that, again, this uh, a one size fits all approach for our post arrest patients is probably not going to be. Uh, the best way to do it. And what we really need to do is find some, uh, develop individualized strategies where do we find for that individual patient what the ultimate or optimal MAP2 target is, and then related to that, what their optimal, optimal PAO2 and PC, PACO2 is to optimize mainly brain oxygen delivery uh, post-arrest and prevent secondary brain injury. 
could not agree with you more on that. Obviously, that re really resonates uh, speci specifically in our group with Bobby Sutton make, uh, doing a lot of the work on uh, goal-directed uh, care and, and sort of centralized uh, sort of pa patient-centered cardiac arrest strategies. And this is very much in line with that. Uh, so we could say that it would be, I think, a first statement to say that post-arrest uh, Car, uh, post cardiac arrest, uh, normoxia, uh, normocarbia, and normotension are reasonable goals uh, for post arrest care yeah, at this I point. If you're, you're going to use a one size fits all approach, then keeping those parameters in the normal range. Now, the one I want to I want to emphasize is that an MAP two of sixty five is yeah. not normal, right? Fair <laughs> enough. MAP Fair two, enough. Over and over again, I keep saying an MAP of sixty five is not a normal mean arterial pressure. So yes, I agree, normal pressure, which would be more like a mean arterial pressure of 80 to 100. With a caveat that probably patients, individual patients with, with specific comorbidities might actually need different targets. And I think that's what we're saying here, that future studies need to um, look at individualized and specific targets for different populations. Yeah, I think Felipe, the other thing I wanna add is that, you know, clinically what I find the most challenging is, you know, these patients don't have no disease. So, you know, I find that the, for example, the COPD patients who may live chronically in the 50s or 60s CO2, like what should their target be? You know, those who are hypertensive at baseline, what should their target be? And so I think this is really clinically what's the most challenging for me, at least. Um, so the jury's really still out. Great. So need more studies to, again, evaluate individualized goal-directed strategies for, for this area as well. So the next study is uh, a study published this year in the European Heart Journal by Dr. Cohen Amalud, and the study is uh, titled Early Goal-Directed Hemodynamic Optimization of Cerebral Oxygenation in Comatose Survival After Cardiac Arrest. This was the NeuroProtect post-cardiac arrest trial, very much in line with what we're just discussing. Um, Cindy, what do you tell us uh, about this specific study? Sure. So Dr. Amalud and colleagues uh, did a prospective single-center randomized clinical trial uh, in their adult ICU, and they um, randomized patients, other hospital cardiac arrest patients who were unconscious to, with all presenting rhythm, I should say. And their intervention was essentially uh, early goal, what they call early goal-directed hemodynamic optimization with a map of target of 80 to 100 with SCVO2 of 65 to 75 versus a map of 65 uh, only target for the first 36 hours in the ICU. And their primary outcome was, in fact, uh, the evidence of anoxic brain injury on diffusion-weighted MRI. And they defined that as a specific ADC cutoff, coefficient cutoff, uh, of number of voxels. Uh, that essentially is lower than that cutoff. Um, and their secondary outcome was survival with good neurologic uh, function, which is CPC of 1 to 2 at uh, 180 days. And so, you know, again, they actually got a really good separations uh, between their hemodynamic goals. And so, you know, if you go to the show note, uh, you will see that the map uh, certainly separated. And they also uh, demonstrated, obviously, that uh, the patients who were randomized to the 80 to 100 uh, group did require uh, significantly more neuroepinephrine infusion than those who were randomized to 65 MAP goal. And they also looked at essentially the degree of cerebral saturation and uh, interestingly found no difference between the two groups. Uh, and finally, they, did, they looked at the flow of uh, middle cerebral uh, artery. And in that one, they did see a higher flow with the higher, uh, the MAP of 80 to 100. They did not see any significant difference between uh, with the primary outcome, which is a degree of noxic brain injury on the diffusion-weighted MRI, although it did actually come close. So the 
p-value was 0.09. Um, and also they did not see there any differences in the survival to good neurologic outcome function. So consistent with the findings from, from Jakula's uh, coma care studies. Correct, correct. And I think, again, this, this is a issue of A, was this, uh, you know, individualized enough uh, to really make a difference? Uh, was a power to detect the said difference? Um, and are the, uh, the outcomes, uh, sh should actually that be different sets of primary and secondary outcomes that we'll be looking at, so. Great. So moving on, the next study that Dr. Neumer included in this selection is a study that uh, we actually reviewed formally dedicated in a previous episode in this podcast, and it was the COACT trial by Dr. Limkes, published only a few months ago, uh, that studied uh, immediate versus delayed post-arrest PCI for patients with NSTEMIs. With a STEMI, we know that those patients need to go to the cath lab, but the question on patients um, with NSTEMI has had not been completely answered uh, so far, and we had not had a study of this quality to provide evidence on this question of important management in post-arrest care. So, Dr. Neumer, why don't you walk us through what Dr. Limke's and group uh, did with the COAC trial? Sure, and just to probably, you know, provide a little bit more context is, you know, again, the sort of the, the descriptive retrospective studies that have looked at this have consistently found that patients that go early to the cath lab uh, that, that don't meet STEMI criteria have better outcomes, but the challenge with that is always the selection bias of taking, you know, the, the idea is that it's likely that the patients have, that have the greatest chance of survival are being the ones being taken to the cath lab, and that's very difficult to control for in a retrospective analysis, so that it is essential that we do get prospective randomized trials to answer this question. So. This was a prospective open-label study, open-label because you know whether you go to the cath lab or not, uh, and it was multi-center in adult ICUs, 522 uh, unconscious patients that were status post out of hospital cardiac arrest with an initial shockable rhythm that did not have STEMI criteria. Also excluded were patients in shock or obvious non-cardiac cause of arrest, which is important as well. And they got randomized to immediate coronary angiography versus at least what was described as coronary angiography that was delayed until after neurologic recovery. So they all got coronary angiography. It was really the time for that. And the survival uh, to 90 days was the primary outcome. So this study has been ex extensively reviewed and discussed. And I'm not sure I have any unique things to add to that. The, the bottom line is that there was, there was no statistical difference in outcome, the primary outcome of survival in the two groups. Uh, but there's a few caveats to that when you compare this to uh, some of the previous, you know, specifically the, the previous retrospective studies. I think the biggest thing that people have discussed is that the incidence of, uh, you know, acute coronary occlusion uh, or treatable disease uh, was much lower in this study than many of the retrospective studies. And if you specifically look at, you know, the most definitive thing is an acute thrombotic occlusion only 3.4% of the patients in the immediate angiography group acute thrombotic occlusion. So that's a much smaller number than what was reported in the, in the retrospective study. So it suggests that this, somehow this patient population had a lower incidence of acute coronary occlusion as the etiology of the cardiac arrest. So to, the external validity of this in different populations that have a higher incidence uh, might be different. Um, so that, that's really, I think, the main um, consideration that people need to think about in, in interpreting this study. What are you doing with your patients, uh, Cindy, at four in the morning when you have a post-arrest uh, in the EC3 and they yeah. had a 
chakral rhythm, but no STEMI. Well, we uh, are you waking we, up your cardiologist? We we are. Uh, I I do at least, uh, and we would have a collegial discussion about if they should go and when they should go. But I think this study, you know, with this limitations, perhaps suggests that don't necessarily need to go right away, but mm -hmm. should go at some point uh, during their hospitalization. So we shouldn't forget about this important intervention yeah. in this group of patients. Uh, it, we just we know now, at least based on this evidence, that we don't need to rush to the cath lab with them. And this is not the last word, right, uh, Bob? There's a, a, a couple of other ongoing studies, one in, in the U.S., the DISCO trial uh, I know about, and then one in Europe, correct? Yeah, there's, there's a number of ongoing studies, and that would be really important, especially looking at you know the patient populations and seeing what this incidence of acute thrombotic occlusion uh, or unstable plaque uh, is in the immediate angiography group to, to really see if it's a if it's a patient selection issue. But I would also say that you know it there, there are there are patients uh, in this group that are going to benefit from acute coronary, acute intervention because uh, there is a, a measurable number of patients that have acute coronary occlusion despite not having STEMI, and that was really the driving force of this research long ago. Uh, when people started taking people early to the cath lab. So it's just a matter of finding that patient population that is at high risk and making sure they get to the cath lab early. Great. So moving on, the next study was actually a big one. And it was a study that I thought very was very interesting on something that I had not thought about and definitely didn't know much about until I read the study. This was hot off the press at RES. And it was a randomized study on the prophylactic use of antibiotics on prevention of early ventilator-associated pneumonia after cardiac arrest. So Cindy, why don't you walk us through what uh, Dr. Francois and team uh, did? Yeah, sure. So Dr. Francois, uh, since this is a really important question because uh, we know that this is based largely on retrospective and observational studies that there is a fairly high level of prevalence uh, of aspiration and perhaps pneumonia, uh, respiratory issues uh, of post-cardiac arrest survivors. And so the question was whether we should start these patients on uh, prophylactic antibiotics. And so what they did was a prospective multicenter double-blind and randomized placebo-controlled trial and they randomized 198 adult patients, uh, hospital cardiac arrest patients, who were um, witness uh, arrest with initial shock of rhythm, who were uh, ventilated uh, to e receive either IV, uh, two days of IV augmented versus placebo, starting less than six hours after the arrest. And their primary outcome was early ventilator-associated pneumonia, which they defined as uh, pneumonia that uh, were diagnosed uh, during the first seven days of hospitalization. Excellent. So what did they find? So what they found was that there was indeed uh, less incidence of early ventilator-associated pneumonia to the antibiotics group. And so if you look at the hazard ratio in the antibiotics group, they turned out to be 0.53. But also if you were to look at the, the trend, the number at risk, it actually by the time you get to seven days, you're essentially like around 20 patients per group. And uh, they also looked at the survival uh, at 90 days, and they found uh, that there was no... Uh, significant difference between the two groups. So I think ultimately this was a well-designed study that showed that at a, you know, if you were to look at their patient demographics, this is a, in a spectrum of uh, cardiac arrest patients, a bystander witness CPR uh, initiated shock of them, probably a less sick of a cohort of patients who, and, and they actually said that the uh, aspiration risk, uh, or witness aspiration was actually fairly low in this cohort. So, you know, but even with that, they actually did see a difference with uh, early ventilator-associated pneumonia rate between, uh, uh, with the antibiotics group. 
Um, I think a, a lot of angst has come out from this since the publication of the study. The question being, you know, should we start antibiotics on post-rest patients and what kind of antibiotics should we start? They did also look at the multi-drug resistance rate uh, between the groups and they found no difference. I think this certainly deserved more research and also looking at different uh, subpopulations of cardiac arrest patients. And I think at any given institution, this needs to be a collegial collaboration between um, you know, emergency medicine, critical care, and uh, infectious disease uh, teams to really come up with the best plan for each institution. Isn't that the answer for each one of the problems that we have? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would chime in too that remember that although they saw a decreased incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia, there was uh, no decrease in ventilator-dependent days, there was no decrease in length of ICU, and they specifically state in the paper, no, none of the patients died of pneumonia or sepsis. Right. So you know, the question is, yes, you can, in this study, is, is, you know, as designed in this patient population, they could decrease the incidence of early pneumonia, but it didn't have an impact on either more intermediate or ultimate outcome. Felipe Tran here. We're going to stop the discussion at this point and leave the next section for episode 15. So stay tuned and um, look for the next episode to complete this presentation. Mm -hmm.